Good morning. It's great to be together as God's people um, this morning. Uh, many of you know uh, some of the context of this apparatus that's up here, but I wanted to uh, share a little bit more detail of that, about that for those of you who may not know. Uh, what I do know is that 11 days ago, December 18th, which was a Wednesday, it was a crisp and cold morning, a perfect day for me to commute to work by bicycle, which I have done many times before. Uh, what I did not know was that there was a patch of black ice waiting for me on Westchester Pike as I was approaching 69th Street. And before I knew what had happened, uh, I was on the road. Uh, figured I was traveling about 15, 20 miles an hour at the time, and I landed on the road with the full weight on my left hip. I knew I had a problem when I had a very bad pain and couldn't even get up to get off the road. Evaluation in the emergency room, emergency room revealed I didn't have a hip fracture, which is what I thought I had, uh, but it showed that I had a more serious pelvic fracture, which involved a couple areas of my pelvis, including the hip socket uh, joint. Two days later, I had surgery in which two long screws uh, were placed to put the pieces back together. So I do want to, and we want to thank everyone who prayed for me and for us. God responding by, responded by allowing a good response to the surgery, giving me the ability to get out of bed uh, with much less pain the next day. And I was able to use a walker to hop around, so I was able to go home instead of going to a nursing home for a couple weeks, as was the original plan. So I came home last Sunday afternoon and had been recuperating at home. Uh, prior to leaving the hospital, I asked the doctor when I could get back to work and get back to biking. <laughs> he got a very serious look on his face, pulled up a chair, and, and sat down and looked me in the eye. He said, you need to understand this was a very significant injury. You should not even begin to think about going back to work for at least a month and you'll not be bearing any weight on that leg for 10 to 12 weeks. Needless to say, it was a bit of a shock to not be able to bear weight on this leg for that long a period of time. And this time period is necessary to allow the bones to heal themselves, to grow back together. After that time, rehab may be needed to regain strength and mobility, but we've got a lot of miles to go before we get there. Uh, contrary to what my children may tell you, my screws are not loose. However, our children did provide a couple useful items for my walker. That was one of my Christmas presents. Uh, the, uh, the bell is supposed to have someone come running right away when I ring it. Uh, so I think I'm going to be returning it with the gift receipt that I received because it does not seem to be working very well. Anytime I ring it, I just get groans and laughs. They also gave me an air freshener to attach to my walker, and the name of the air freshener is Black Ice. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I want to thank a, uh, a good friend from Grace Chapel who delivered a cupcake to me. Before he left, he warned me to be careful when eating it because it was iced. 2 <laughs> Corinthians 1, uh, verses 10 and 11 states, on God we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. 
I firmly believe that the good result of surgery and the ability to come home quicker than they originally thought is directly related to God honoring the prayers of his people on our behalf. I don't pretend to say that just because we pray everything works out the way we want it to, but yet God works through the prayers of his people to accomplish his great purposes. So we do want to thank everyone for continued cards, texts, and prayers. All of this has been a great encouragement during some long days and some long nights, of which there are many more to come. Please feel free to remind us that despite what happens to us, God is always only good. So I look forward to interacting with many of you over the weeks ahead about these things. As we transition now to our time of study together, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are the one who is with us through the ups and downs of life, and you order those ups and downs according to your purposes, even though we often do not understand what those purposes are. But thank you that, as we just sang, that we can celebrate that glorious day when God became flesh. We can celebrate that glorious day when Jesus died for our sins. We can celebrate that glorious day when Jesus rose from the dead. And I pray that you would help us to increasingly look forward to that glorious day when the trumpet will sound and you will come back for us. And so, Lord, I pray as we now turn our attention to your word that you would teach us from your word. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you and to see your grace anew. May you lead us to some unfamiliar places through these familiar stories. And we know that it is your spirit that gives us understanding, and may he be with us this morning to help us to grow in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I had been thinking about preparing this message prior to my accident and uh, I'm grateful to be able to be here today to discuss this, the message, the substance of the message had mostly been completed before the accident, and uh, I originally thought I wouldn't be able to be here, but I'm very grateful to be here. And I was reflecting on the, the timing of the message on December 29th, it's, it's the week after Christmas, you know, we know the, we know the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Well, I searched around for some things that "'Twas the Week After Christmas,' And I'd like to read one of the, the offerings that we found for that and see if you resonate with that. Uh, "'Twas the week after Christmas, and all through the house, every creature was hurting, even the mouse. The toys were all broken, their batteries dead, Santa passed out with some ice on his head. Wrapping and ribbons just covered the floor, while upstairs the family continued to snore. And I in my T-shirt, new Reeboks and jeans, went to the kitchen and started to clean." When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the sink to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the curtains and threw up the sash. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a little white truck with an oversized mirror. The driver was smiling so lively and grand, the patch on his jacket said, U.S. Postman. With a handful of bills, he grinned like a fox, then quickly he stuffed them into our mailbox. Bill after bill after bill, they still came, whistling and shouting, he called them by name. Now Macy's, now Walmart, now Best Buy and Sears, here Boscovs and Target and Kohl's, they're all here. To the tip of your limit, every store, every mall, now charge away, charge away, charge away all. Resonating, huh? He whooped and he whistled as he finished his work. 
He filled up the box, then turned with a jerk. He sprang to his truck and he drove down the road, driving much faster with just half a load. Then I heard him exclaim with great holiday cheer, enjoy what you got, you'll be paying all year. (laughs) The week after Christmas, we know that Christmas is really about the birth of baby Jesus, God becoming flesh. We know it's about a manger, about shepherds, angels, wise men, a story that even children can understand and tell. And don't we look forward to Christmas every year? But by the time Christmas is over, we're tired, the gifts are put away, maybe forgotten, maybe broken, maybe still need to be paid for. The tree is shedding its needles. December 25th is the high point, the ending, the climax, and we settle in for the rest of the long winter until we start thinking about Christmas again. So what does your house look like, sound like at this time, four days after Christmas? But when Christmas was over in the biblical story, things were just getting started. And we are reminded that Jesus was just an ordinary child who was no ordinary child. And so we're going to look at Twas the Week After Christmas. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. We are actually going to look at this passage over the next uh, three weeks, this week and the two weeks following, uh, pulling out three different things. This week we're going to look uh, at where it centers around Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Next week we're going to look at Simeon and Anna and their role in this story. And then on January 12th we're going to focus on the implications of this passage for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. There are some important and fascinating details here that we can often gloss over because we're so familiar with the story or because we don't understand their importance. So as I prayed, I would ask each of us to pray that God would show us some new things or perhaps some old things in a new way. So I'd like to read this passage and then we'll uh, dig in. So this is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Amen. Today we're going to focus on three specific activities that have been commanded by God for parents who love him. We're going to look at circumcision, purification, and presentation. And we'll look at the historical background of these and what Mary Joseph did, and then step back to see the applications for us. So if you look at verse 21, at the end of eight days, well, actually, if you look at verse 20, right, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. This, was, this is the Christmas story, right? The shepherds, the star, the wise men, and here the shepherds are gone. And here we are now in verse 21. At the end of eight days, a week later, it was the week after Christmas, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the baby is a week old. They are still in Bethlehem. They have not left Bethlehem yet. The practice of circumcision dates back to around 2000 B.C. when God sets apart Abraham to be the father of the Jewish nation. God commands Abraham that from then on, all males born to his family are to be circumcised as the mark that they were members of the people of God through the promise, through the covenant that God made with Abraham. This was then later repeated in the law of Moses in Leviticus 12. Newborn boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day of life. So thus, we see here that God-fearing Jewish parents had been doing this for the past 2,000 years, had been in faith in God, had been circumcising their newborn sons. So Jesus here is circumcised on the eighth day as commanded by God. So far, this is all normal for a baby newly born to parents who love God. But hidden in verse 21, the second part of that, are two not-so-subtle reminders that this was an ordinary baby who was no ordinary baby. And the words pass by quickly if you're not paying attention. What does it say there? He was called Jesus. He was called Jesus. Right? Every baby's born. They're given a name. Right? Uh, and for you parents, how has that gone for you? Uh, oftentimes, it's a bit of a struggle, Right? Uh, when uh, Laurel and I, uh, when Laurel gave birth to our third child, we had a girl's name that we liked. We just hadn't settled on it yet. And so when she was born, we started making the phone calls. Oh, what's the baby's name? Well, don't, we don't know yet. We think we might call her Martha, and, but we're not sure yet. And after the 10th time that you do that, guess what? <laughs> the name stuck. Uh, and we love that. And I'm actually we're privileged to have Martha and her husband with us. Uh, this morning. Now, as a matter of fact, on Saturday, uh, we just got the news that our oldest daughter, Sarah, delivered her fifth. So this is our eighth grandchild. I'm sorry I don't have pictures, but I also don't have a name yet. Um, so this naming thing is a bit of a challenge sometimes uh, as to what to do. But he was called Jesus. How did he get his name? His name was given by the angel. 
An angel appeared to Mary and Joseph and, and told them that Mary was going to have this baby and that his name would be Jesus. I am guessing that there were not many of us that were given the names for our babies by an angel appearing to us. Uh, and so this baby was an ordinary baby who was no ordinary baby. The other thing that's contained in here, he was, before he was conceived in the womb, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, again, this sounds normal enough to remember that Jesus' conception was no normal conception. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived a son without the required male partner. So even in this verse is contained this uh, juxtaposition, this two things next to each other, that this normal child being circumcised as normal, being given a name as normal, was not normal. He is fully human from the beginning, very ordinary. He is circumcised and he is named. But he is conceived by the Holy Spirit and given his name by an angel. He is fully God from the beginning, very unordinary, very human and very God in one person. Well, he was circumcised. What happens next? Uh, it says in verse 22, uh, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. They took the five-mile journey north to Jerusalem to do the next two things that were required by the law of God. For a baby boy, the mother was commanded to present herself to the temple 40 days after the baby was born. You can see that in Leviticus 12. And the mother was to present herself at 40 days after the baby was born with two offerings. She was to bring a sin offering, which was a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, which was to be either a pigeon or a turtle dove. And she was to bring a burnt offering, which was a dedication of one's entire self to God. And that offering was to be a lamb. But Leviticus 12.8 says this, But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one of the birds for the sin offering and one for the burnt offering. And if you look here in verse 24, it says, To offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's very interesting here that Luke does not mention the lamb and the turtle dove. He just mentions the two turtle doves or the two pigeons. And if you were not aware of the background of this, that would just pass right by you with nothing. But what does this tell us about Mary and Joseph? They were poor. So this gives us some insight into the family that Mary and Joseph were poor. They could not afford the lamb and the turtle dove for the offering. They brought two, two turtle doves or two pigeons for the offering. So we have circumcision according to the law of the Lord. We have purification according to the law of Moses. And then what was the next thing in verse 22 and 23? The time came for their purification. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. We have presentation as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. God says in Exodus 13, verse 1, he says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And this commemorates when God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians but spared the firstborn children of Israel by the sacrifice of a lamb in their place. 
Thus God commanded that all firstborn sons were to be especially dedicated to him. They were to be brought to the temple and dedicated to him in a special way. So we see now that Jesus is circumcised, he, his mother is purified, and Jesus himself is presented uh, in the temple as required. You say, okay, well, that all sounds really good. But this is where it starts to get significant. And this is, I was going through this passage, it, this is where I began to do the, huh, look at that. If you look down at verse 39, it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. That's a very deceptively profound and very significant statement. Again, ordinary practices pointing to an unordinary life. When you're reading a passage, when you're studying a passage of Scripture, one of the things you want to look for is repeated phrases or repeated concepts. And if you were paying attention as we read this, what do we see in verse 22? According to the law of Moses. Verse 23 is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, according to the custom of the law. Verse 39, everything according to the law of the Lord. And even in verse 21, when it says about the circumcision, they circumcised him according to the law of the Lord. You get this sense that there's something going on here about the law of the Lord because it is repeated so many times. And the concluding statement is here is when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Well, what is the law? The law is that sum total of all the commands that God gave his people that governed their total life. It's the total sum of all the commands that God gave his people that governed their total life. It governed their morality, governed their civil society, it governed their worship of God. And it's found in what we refer to as the Old Testament and often summarized as the Ten Commandments. How important was this law? Well, in Deuteronomy 30, God says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live. But if you, do, if you will not hear, you will perish. God was calling for complete obedience to all the commandments all of the time. And that was the dividing line between life and death. So the dividing line between whether you deserved life with God or separation from God, whether you deserve life or you deserve death, was whether you were able to keep the entire commandments without fail all of the time. You say, okay, well, that's good, but what about today? We're under grace, so we don't have to worry about this Old Testament law of God, right? Well, I invite you to turn here. You can turn to this passage in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We see Jesus himself now about 30 years after this story that we are looking at today. He's, uh, he's about 30. And in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus say about the law after he came? He said the law was to be perfectly obeyed by everyone down to its tiniest part. When he says not an iota, he's talking about the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. When he says not a dot, that's what it is. It's, it's a little period or the dot you put above an I. He said there is nothing that is going to pass away from the law until it all is accomplished. And, and just in case they didn't get the significance of that, he makes the statement in verse 20, in verse 20 for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Anyone hearing that at that time, that was a shocking statement because if anybody had a shot at obeying the law, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. They committed themselves to knowing and obeying every point of the law and were um, detailed about how they were going to do that. And Jesus says, they don't even come close. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if they were listening closely, that would have actually led them to a point of despair, most likely. But what is important here? This is important because God did not do away with the law. God did not do away with the law as the standard of what it means to be in right relationship with him. The law defined what holiness is. It defines what righteousness is. It defines what a person looks like who loves God and is following him. God did not do away with the law as the standard of what it means to be in right relationship with him. Perfect obedience to every detail of the law still matters. Perfect obedience to every detail of the law still matters. Well, that should make you a little bit nervous because obeying the law is not possible. Ignoring the law is not an option and being sincere and doing the best you can is not enough. But this is where we start to see the application of Luke's account for us today. If you want to go back to Luke 2, this is rooted in Jesus' statement, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Luke shows us, again, this puts a whole new significance on verse 39 and everything that's going on here. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, Luke shows us that even as an infant, Jesus is fulfilling every command of the law perfectly. Circumcision, purification, presentation, that's why Luke is very careful. When they came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as is written in the law of the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. This is repeated because Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. God is using parents here who love him and who have faith in him to do for the baby what the baby could not do for himself to make sure everything was fulfilled perfectly. And his life, as his life goes on, he will fulfill the law in its totality, all of its requirements, 
all of its promises, all of its penalties, Jesus will, will fulfill every aspect of that law that God says you must fulfill perfectly in order to have life with me. Jesus fulfilled that law. He did what we could not do by fulfilling that law. I'd like to invite you to turn again now to Romans 8 as we begin to turn to, okay, so what is the significance of this for us? Because we are tempted to think that when Jesus came, we don't have to worry about the law anymore. We can just forget about it. We, fulfillment of the law is not important. But as I hope you're beginning to see now, I don't believe that to be true. God still requires perfect fulfillment of the law in our lives. We have to understand what that means. Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let this sink in. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We in ourselves as sinful human beings can never, can never, can never obey the requirements of the law. We cannot. We are doomed to failure. As a matter of fact, we've all failed. Every person in this room has actually failed. I don't care how old you are unless you're a month old. Uh, you have failed to fulfill God's law. But God says here, God has done what the law could not do. It wasn't because the law was a problem. It's because we're a problem. The law could not give us life before God. So what has happened? God has done it for us. By sending his own son, Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law for us. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law for us on our behalf, in our place. And not only that, he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us. Jesus didn't just fulfill the law for us. He fulfills it in us. As the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, those of us who are believers, that righteous requirement, Jesus' life begins to be worked out in our lives and the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us and he fulfills that, the requirements of the law in us. So you have to fulfill the law. You say, well, I can't fulfill the law, but you have fulfilled the law because Jesus fulfilled the law for you. Someone did it on your behalf and that someone is Jesus. It is often said that Jesus was born to die. Well, that's true, but he was also born to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Jesus was an ordinary baby who was no ordinary baby. Like you, he fully lived the human experience. But unlike you, unlike me, he fully obeyed God in everything, starting in his infancy. In his infancy, at eight days of age, he is circumcised according to the law of Moses. 
Because of his death on the cross for us, the shame and guilt of our sin against God is paid for. Because of his perfect life, he can now give us his righteousness so we can live in a way that is pleasing to God. So how do we live in light of that truth that Jesus fulfilled the law for us? Well, I invite you to turn to one more passage, if you will. Philippians chapter 3. You know, a lot of people will say, well, they have a life verse, right? How many people have a life verse? Something, a verse really means a lot to you? Yeah, a few out there. I've, I've never been able to be so decisive, so I have a life passage. <laughs> I can't narrow it down to a verse. Philippians 3 is my life passage, but I like to look at some excerpts of that. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul's highest goal here? He says, the highest goal of my life is to know Jesus Christ, to know him as my Lord. That's my highest goal. My highest goal is to not live a godly life. My highest goal is not to do right in everything I do. My highest goal is to not live with integrity and honesty and purity. My highest goal is to know Jesus Christ. Because, why, in verse 9, if I am found in him, if Christ is in me and I am connected to him, I will have a righteousness that is not of my own that comes from the law, but I'll have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul's highest goal was to know Jesus Christ. And so the challenge here is to turn away from the pursuit of anything else. We should pursue knowing Jesus above all else. Turn away from trying to make yourself a better person. Pursue allowing God to change you. And recognize this is a process. Paul says in verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We belong to God through Jesus Christ and what he has done, and he desires to give us his righteousness to work that out in us. And Paul says that's, this is a process. It's a lifelong journey. I'm pressing on. He goes on later to say, I don't, in verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. That's our daily lives of pressing on. A Christian teacher once made this statement. He said, I used to think that when the Apostle Paul tells us to work out our salvation, it meant go out and get what you don't have. Get more patience. Get more strength. Get more joy. Get more love, and so on. But after reading the Bible more carefully, I now understand that Christian growth does not happen by working hard to get something you don't have. 
Rather, Christian growth happens by working hard to daily swim in the reality of what you do have. I think that's profound. Christian growth does not happen by working hard to get something you don't have. Christian growth happens by working hard to daily swim in the reality of what you do have. And what do we have? We have a Savior who perfectly fulfilled every point of the law for us because I failed to, and now I no longer have to because He did it for me, and He's going to work it out in me in my day-to-day life. So if you're trying hard to obey God, give it up. Jesus already fully obeyed for you. If you constantly fail to obey God, don't despair. Jesus has already obeyed everything for you. And I believe today's lesson gives us a good model to follow of what God's work is in our life. We talked about circumcision, purification, and presentation. Well, circumcision, as we bring it into today's context, that represents the Holy Spirit marking believers as members of God's family. If, put, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been spiritually circumcised. You have been marked out by the Holy Spirit as being members of God's family. What about purification? Well, when you sin, how do we deal with our sin? We come to God in confession and repentance, say, God, I, I failed to live up to who you would have me to be. I sinned against you. I don't want to be that way. Please change me. Help me not to be that way. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I ask your forgiveness, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. And then presentation. Offer yourself fully to God for him to do in you and with you what he knows is best. God, I don't want to be like this. I want to honor you. I want to live for you. Everything I have, I want to be for you. I'm asking you, I'm begging you that your life would live out in me, that your righteousness would be made known in me, that you would change me, transform me in my thoughts, in my heart, in my actions, my attitudes, that I can be like you because I know you lived the perfect life for me. Please live it in me. I know that you died for the forgiveness of my sins. Help me to walk in gratitude of what you have done for me. So as we think about the new year coming, January 1st coming, what is a good New Year's resolution for 2020? Well, I would say don't resolve to be a better person. That's what New Year's resolutions really are, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resolve to read more books. I'm going to resolve to get more exercise. I'm going to resolve to lose weight. I'm going to resolve to be nicer. I would suggest that that's, those are good resolutions, but they're not far enough. I would say resolve to know the person of God better. If there's a resolution for 2020, as Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I regard everything as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. So don't resolve to be a better person. Resolve to know the person of God better. And don't resolve to grow in your righteousness. Resolve to let Jesus' righteousness grow in you. Don't resolve to grow in your righteousness. Resolve to let Jesus' righteousness grow in you. So Luke 2.39 when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. He had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Your relationship with God is secure, not because what you have done or not done, but because of what Jesus has done, because of his perfect obedience to the law on your behalf. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law for you and desires to fulfill them in you.
Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you sent your son born under the law to fulfill all the requirements of the law for us. He came on our behalf. He came to die on our behalf. He came to rise from the dead on our behalf. And he came to perfectly obey all the requirements of the law on our behalf. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to continually draw near to you to allow your righteousness to be perfected in us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit within us, by the fellowship of fellow believers as we encourage one another along the way, and by the truth of your word. And Father, I ask that you would help us to realize that this is not something that we can do ourselves. This is something that is done through Christ alone. That is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves, but it is something that you do in us. For what we could not do, you have done for us. And so may we live, as, may we resolve in 2020 to live in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.